Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Post Political Podcast. I'm the host, uh, Derek Britton, and uh, I've got a pretty awesome guest tonight. I'm pretty uh, excited. I actually um, just talked to him in the pre production meeting, but before that, I haven't talked to him since uh, probably just getting out of high school. So uh, he's an old friend of mine. Uh, we played basketball together, did a bunch of stuff when we were kids, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk with him tonight. But uh, first up, you know, we got we got the sponsors. We have the Vermin Supreme Institute. Our purpose is to inspire social evolution through the disruption of authoritarianism, to promote compassion and activism, and to spread the knowledge of redacted history. Through the use of humor, direct action, and mutual aid, we uplift the disaffected, the disenfranchised, and the disempowered. And for uh, Vermin Supreme Institute, we actually uh, just finished the uh, Love in Action fundraiser. Um, we were able to go over the goal and, and provide a ton of folks um, uh, some clothing and supplies uh, to a homeless camp in uh, Reno, Nevada. Um, so that was pretty awesome. Thank you, everyone, for the support. Uh, and next up, we have Brewed Coffee. Uh, so if you're in Lexington, Kentucky, check out Brewed Coffee and Beer Drinkery. Um, you can check out my affiliate link as well in the comments to buy mug shirts, hats, uh, masks, all sorts of stuff. Um, that's uh, Brewed Coffee in Lexington, Kentucky. And lastly, we have the Post-Political Podcast Merch Store. Uh, if you use the code UNITY, you get 10% off your entire order. Um, you can find all sorts of stuff there, you know, uh, fanny packs, uh, kids onesies, uh, hats. I'm actually wearing the hat that came in uh, just today. Um, so I'm excited to actually have some of the merch that I sell in the store. Um, so now I'm get to introduce uh, Travis. So Travis, uh, I've known for a very long time, as I stated, uh, he's incredibly knowledgeable in uh, kind of the emerging uh, technologies around uh, kind of Bitcoin, cryptocurrency uh, and blockchain. So we're going to be talking about a lot of that and, and how kind of decentralized systems can kind of impact the, you know, how we interact with each other, how we interact with businesses and, and government as well. So let's bring in Travis. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, of course. No, that's I'm super pumped to have you on. Like I said, it's it's uh, pretty great to uh, talk to you. It's been a little while, and uh, you know, to be able to talk to you kind of about something uh, that I'm interested in, I don't know a whole hell of a lot about, but uh, it sounds like you know a lot about. Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm pumped for tonight. Unreal. I didn't even know. I forgot that we played basketball together. We weren't <laughs> even talking about that before. So I was no. like, oh yeah. Yeah, I figured I'd throw that in and see if I catch it, you know. Uh, absolutely, we, absolutely. I think I probably still have the photos of us, you know, you know, half the size and super uh, scrawny and just trying to play uh, rec league basketball, so. I love it. But um, now I, I wanted to bring you on, you know, I the, so this podcast is uh, got a political lean to it, but, you know, uh, cryptocurrency and, and kind of the, the decentralized nature of it can kind of, you know, help us get to a lot of different places and, and do some things that, um, kind of democratizes a lot of the system that is, uh, you know, kind of held all by the uh, higher ups in the government. So it, it kind of uh, changes the the power structure a little bit. So I figured I'd bring you on. I think this is going to be uh, pretty fun. And, and uh, I kind of wanted to start off with figuring out kind of how you got to where you are politically and kind of where you are politically. You know, we haven't talked in a little bit, so it's, it'd be good to hear kind of where you uh, stand. Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, so the first thing I always say is I think that, um, you know, I've like done a lot of stuff in terms of moving around and being around different people. So I uh, did my undergraduate in the University of Maine and where we grew up in Maine and these types of things. Uh, moved out to Kansas, did my graduate work in Kansas. And I did my postdoctoral research fellowship in Sweden at a university in Gothenburg, Sweden, which is Volvo City, USA in Sweden. So that's right where Volvo is. Yeah. Um, and so 
like personally, I think that like a lot of my political views have been shaped by all the moving that I've done, right? And yep. not necessarily exactly where I've uh, lived because I don't necessarily consider myself like a uh, red state Republican here in living in Missouri. Right. <laughs> um, but it's definitely given me a really different view on kind of how people view the world. It's yeah. really, really interesting. And I find, you know, a lot of times when uh, when I come back to New England, things like this, I find it interesting um, to in interact with people who have, who have uh, less experience with, you know, other people, I think sometimes. Right. But so anyway, so how that kind of shapes stuff. Um, yeah. So I, I, I would say one of the things that um, I've talked with uh, a lot of people around here and uh, my wife specifically and stuff like this about it. So I didn't understand a lot of like um, the way people interact in the world, things like um, racism and sexism and these types of things. Um, and, and it gives you a lot of information about, um, you know, especially coming from New England where you don't see a lot of like, um, there's just, especially Maine, I, I heard yep. this stat that I couldn't believe that Maine was uh, the most Caucasian state in the lower 48 at like 98%. And I've subsequently done the research, done a little bit of research and seen mm -hmm. it pop up a few different times. That's actually a real stat. Yeah. Um, and I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, like somebody told me that in when I was out in the Midwest. Yep. And I was like, really? I was, and then anyway, so the, like just those little things, right? Shape the way you think about, you know, like race relations and this type of stuff and and how we relate to each other in that way when I never had that issue, right? Right. Um, and then you go from a place like so the Midwest where there's like more racial diversity, right? In big cities like Kansas City and St. Louis, right? Yep. Where they've historically had like some racial tension. And oh, then definitely. You to, then you go out to Sweden where there's no his, history of systemic racism in the culture at all. Yep. And it's even weirder, right? Where, uh, you know, my, my Swedish friends would ask me, they're like, well, what's the difference? Like, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. It's just different. Right. You know? Like it, it forces you to really think about what's going on in the society around you. Now, I don't I don't know, at least from this perspective, how that like I don't have like a full on political view associated with this thing, I think. Yeah. Um, but it but I think that th these are the these are the types of things that shape our politics and kind of shape the way I think about them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's and so it's just been absolutely nuts. Yeah, my one of my best friends in Sweden came out here and like came to the Midwest with me. And, he, uh, you know, he was like. Um, not when he came to the Midwest, but when he was back in Sweden, he was like, you know, what, what is it about, you know, like the, um, like the, the racial issues and, you know, like the racial inequalities and these types of things that is so different from here, you know? And I'm like, ah, I don't know, but I do know, I will tell you this, when I was in Sweden, um, it was very interesting because it felt like uh, any like racial diversity, right? Whether it was like people from Syria at that time who were yep. immigrating to Sweden, it was a huge deal in 2017 when I was there. It still is, but at that time it was enormous, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Um, or North African refugees who are, you know, like African of descent, right? Uh, every It seemed like in that society, um, everybody was kind of on the same foot. You know, yeah. Um, the Swedes in general, if you were like a native Swede, kind of um, had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, uh, but that had to do with nationalism, not race, right? Yeah. Um, so if you were if you were Swedish, it didn't matter to them what your race was. You were, you had the same chip on your shoulder as everybody else. Right. Right. And so yeah, so for from that perspective, like nationalism and things like this were really weird to me too. Where the yeah. Swedes don't have this nationalist sense of pride, right? And so right. it really opened my eyes up to like like we were watching the Super Bowl the other day. And, uh, you know, they sang the national anthem and like, and, you know, uh, jets overhead and things like this. I went to a bunch of like Swedish sporting events and they didn't do any of these things. Right. And I was like, so what do they do? They just drop the puck or they just kick the ball off. They're like, yeah, we just, they blow the whistle. We start. I'm like, right. <laughs> like, they do some things. They do some chanting and some other stuff. Right. Yeah, they, have, yeah, yeah. they have some other cultural things, but it wasn't, it wasn't straight nationalism. Right. Right. Which was weird. 
Yeah. Um, so anyway, I would say um, I would the thing I would say the most that has shaped my uh, political views was my time in Sweden. Yeah. Um, it was a really interesting society of democratic socialists, right? Yeah. And yeah, so and I, I mean was, that's that's probably uh, just that you know that just echoing what you said. That's probably what uh, kind of shaped my views a, a ton as well. Is uh, m- my wife and I traveling? Uh, we traveled all through Europe. Uh, we were able to travel uh, Western and Eastern Europe. We were able to travel through. Um, you know, a bunch of different countries and kind of just with a backpack on our, our backs and, and got to meet people. We didn't go to like a ton of the touristy things to go to. We just went to bars and restaurants and try to talk to people and, and learn about the culture. And, and it was cool. It was uh, the most eye opening thing I ever. And that, that's kind of what got rid, you know, got rid of completely, but like definitely chipped away at this whole nationalism piece of, of uh, you know, uh, USA is the best and USA. And it's like, it's yeah. such a thing that's drilled into you your whole life. And, uh, and once you see other cultures do things differently, I guess it just completely changes that perspective. I don't think most people notice it either. I certainly didn't. Right. right. I went somewhere else. Like, and I, I, I noticed it the most when the Swedes didn't think Sweden was the best. You know what I mean? They right. were just like, no, it's just a country that we live in that we enjoy. Right. We don't yep. leave because we like the, our friends and we like the Swedish language and the culture. And we like Sustraming these weird things. But like, it's not because you know, uh, red, white, the red, white, and blue or whatever, you know? Right. Right. And it made me think about like, yeah, how, what, how nationalism kind of shaped your view of the world. Like in, and especially living in a culture, like in a place like Sweden, where the standard of living is really high, right? Northern yep. Europe, the standard of living is extremely high. So you can't even default back to, well, the standard of living in the United States is just right. It right. Was, I mean, the standard of living was equivalent, if not better on a per capita basis in Sweden. So you're like, well, right. what are we, what are we doing? You know, like, yeah, it really makes you think, OK, well, now now you really have to compare the two societies in terms of like, what are they doing well and well, what aren't they doing well? And we talked we talked before this about how I thought, you know, Sweden was doing healthcare really well. Yeah. Like my buddy broke, like fell off a rock climbing wall and broke his ankle. And he was like in the emergency room three hours later. It cost him like 80 bucks. And he was like, you know, on, uh, I don't know if I was like Swedish disability or something like this. Right. Yeah, yeah. The Swedish, the Swedish system paid like 80% of his, you know, postdoctoral salary, his PhD salary while he was out, you know? And he was just yep. like, yeah, dude, it's just like, he's like, it's just another thing that happened to me. It's super relaxing. It's not, I mean, it's not relaxed. It's stress, it's stress pre relatively stress-free. Right. Um, and you know, and, and, and he was like, you know, I would expect it to be that way. Right. He's like, right. I get hurt. And we have the capability as a society to make, to repair me, right? Right. Then it then we should agree that it shouldn't be an, a life ending issue, right? Right. Where you know a day in the hospital and emergency surgery and you know all the medication associated with and whatever could be life changing for someone here, dependent upon where. Hundred percent. Yeah, no, no, it's it's completely true, and and it it's interesting too to to figure out kind of how people got there and stuff. Like how how did Sweden get there? How did they get to that point where they could you know as a society uh, kind of pay for those things? But um, you know, I don't want to get too far off the rails. I know you and I yeah, can kind of shoot the shit about a lot of different stuff for, <laughs> for a while. So um, no, I, that's great, and I, I think you know I think that's a good kind of nugget for people to take away is you know travel. I, I think if you have the means, if even if um, you do things on a on a you know, shoestring budget travel, uh, if you can, it, it's, it's really, really uh, eye opening. You know, it can help you with that digital currencies. Seriously though. Right. Like yeah. I, had to try, I had to like send all my money back from Sweden and pay like a 5% fee to just like wire my, wire all my Swedish kroner back and trans and transition them to dollars. And I was like, why am I doing this? That was 2017. I mean, at that time, right. 20, 
yeah, early 2017 or maybe like late 2016 where Bitcoin was like becoming another a thing at that point, right? I mean, it hit, right. it hit 17 or 20K at that time. And so this is like an actual mechanism for value transfer it, that was available to me at that time that I didn't use. You know? Right, right. Really and it would have saved you all that money transferring money back and forth. I mean, that's that's absolutely there. Unbelievable. Yeah. So yeah, to get back into that a little bit. Um, so if you can give us kind of a crash course on... Um, I guess some of the blockchain stuff that that kind of is a prerequisite to, to learning about uh, Bitcoin a little bit, like how how do how does this? Uh, so a lot of people are like, "Oh, this this currency is not tied to anything," and I laugh because I'm like, "Well, so, neither is the dollar. Like the dollar is not uh, tied to a gold standard anymore or anything like that. So it, it's sure. worth whatever someone says it's worth, which is the same thing as crypto. But there's actually more to it, I think." Uh, I think th there's more that ties uh, crypto to the real world. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that and kind of how, how it's constructed and how we can uh, kind of use it to, like you said, kind of transfer money or do whatever. So. so let's think about the blockchain in general, right? So what is blockchain? So blockchain is a chain of blocks, right? Um, and we, we aggregate them together with like cybersecurity principles. And so that's why like it's so familiar to me is they use these standard cryptographic principles to, to basically aggregate all this data, right? Right. Um, and so there, and and also to allow you to access that data, right? So they use the concept of things like private keys and public keys yep. for you to access that data and for you to authenticate yourself. And we'll talk about some of the principles later, right? Um, but but what the blockchain is is it's a it's a it's a it's a block of of uh, a, a ledger events, right? A yep. distributed ledger. Right. And so it's a it's a block of events and basically transactions. Right. And so Bitcoin at its core. Right. It all it is is a technology to allow us to have a ledger of transactions and there and the transactions are of this, um, you know, you uh, uniformly denominated currency Bitcoin. Right. Right. And so one and so what that means is, is one Bitcoin is worth the same as another Bitcoin. Right. Yep. And in the blockchain space, there's actually two different types of technologies that do this. Right. So they have these, you know, uniformly distributed currencies. Right. And then they also have what are known as non fungible tokens, NFTs. And so yep. and so that's familiar to us, too. Right. That's like art. Right. Yep. Art is worth something. Right. But it's unique as opposed right. to a dollar bill. And yeah. so and so the thing that really uh, kind of, you know, opened my eye, my eyes to what Bitcoin was and how valuable it was is um all of our regular lives are de are uh, described in transactions like this, right? Yeah. Your credit card, your bank statements, your flights, whatever it is, right? Um, but let's just stick to money. So, right, all of that's all of that stuff, right? Is literally just it's literally just an entry in a ledger. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And the Medici's called this double entry accounting, right? Where you could you could put some money in and and loan some money out, right? And you basically had two entries, right? Yeah. Um, and so the, the invention of double entry accounting allowed us to kind of have all of this, all of these like manufactured financial products and stuff, right? But what they right. did is all they had is the ledger, right? Yeah. And so who controls the ledger is the question, right? Right. And so and so most close most closely to you, right, is your wife? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Uh, mine too. So, <laughs> uh, but most closely to you is your bank, right? Your bank controls this ledger, right? But realistically, your bank is actually beholden to the Federal Reserve, right? And the the Federal Reserve has a symbiotic relationship with the U.S. government. Right? Yep. And so, and so, like they control the ledger and the distribution of funds, right? And then you have this kind of hierarchy of how they get dis distributed, right? And the yep. closer you are to that faucet of money, right, the better off that you are. And I've, I've heard you talk about this on here before, as well. Oh, a ton, yeah. And so, 
And so the question, the question I have to you, I yeah. know you're going to get quizzed <laughs> is, you know, why hasn't anybody done this before? Right. Why isn't there some other ledger out there? Right. Like I, I, it's an open-ended question for you to think about, but yeah. everybody else, why, why hasn't anybody done this before? Right. And the reason is, is because the U S government or the European union or the, these other central banks don't want you to. Right. There's no way they don't want you to have a mechanism to transfer value outside of their system. And that's that's the real answer. I mean, it just is. Yeah. Um, and so then you would say, so your second question then is, well, then why does this work? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so and so how would they stop you in previous iterations of this? Right. How would they stop you from, you know, turning a video game currency into a real currency, which is which they have done. Right. Right. Yeah. Trying to exchange value in video games. And what they did is they confiscated those servers. Right. right. They took and they looked at the ledgers and they said, uh, you're holding these over here. Right. And we want them and you can't have them anymore. Right. They did the same thing to email private email servers back in the day. Right. And so they said, you can't do that anymore. And we'll take them, please. Right. And so uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, right, a bunch of cryptographers got together and said, uh, okay, well, stop this, right? Yeah. And what they did is they developed a cryptographic solution, right, to allow that ledger to live uh, independent of a server somewhere. Right. right? And, that, and that concept is called decentralization. And so that's, that's what a blockchain is, right, right. Um, at its core. And so what we are doing now is agreeing on this um, on this decentralized ledger, right? Right. And um, Bitcoin, right, does it the most eloquently one yep. and has the most network buy-in, right. right? Which makes it the most secure. I mean, recently too, done a physical buy-in, Tesla just bought, you know, a ton to be now allowing a, a Bitcoin to pay for a Tesla. Um, and, and you're seeing more and more of, of this, you know, allowing uh, folks to pay for things online and all sorts of, and it's funny that you touched on um, the word that really got my attention uh, was decentralization. Decentralization is something uh, libertarians agree with, Green Party agrees with, like a lot of folks believe, you know, and I think this is true, that we are better working in our communities and in kind of decentralized away from one bigger entity because we we know what we each other needs a little bit more. So that's what initially got me into looking into Bitcoin and, and blockchain and stuff is because, man, they, they're now doing this with money. And we just saw the financial crises and, and we just saw um, how the the you know kind of concentration of wealth and power uh, uh created this problem basically and allowed folks to just manipulate uh, uh consumers at the lower level who didn't have the knowledge and, and kind of uh got out like bandits you know none of there was what one one banker that got arrested during that so i mean it just it goes to show you that they're willing to go and arrest a little guy for for um doing you know petty theft and things like that but the the folks that are stealing millions and millions of dollars from consumers they just didn't uh touch you know because they they were closer to that power yeah the thing that really ate me alive was the bailouts mm -hmm. where uh where you know we and we touched on this a little bit in the pre-show where we talked about you know uh, risk versus reward and you know how you balance these things and you know they you if you take a lot of risk right and you are punished for that risk right then you have to pick yourself up, yourself up by your bootstraps, declare bankruptcy or whatever it is, right? right. However much risk you chose to take, right? Yep. But if if an entity decides to take a bunch of risk with your house, right, and eighty five thousand other houses and two hundred and fifty thousand houses in Europe, right, and that risk was ill advised, right? right, and as a result they go bankrupt, right, uh, then then they just get more money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, it's 
we're blew the my mind as well. I was just as uh, you know, kind of ticked off as you were there. And we're the generation, I think, that really has the like has seen it the most, right? We're kind of the youngest group that really saw it, right? Right. Like we were, you know, 2008. We were, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22, right? And before that age, you're probably not really concerned with finance at all. And to be honest, to, right. to be frank with you, at that time, I wasn't really. Honest, right. right? Same here. But, in, but in retrospect, you can go, oh, yeah, I was. I remember that though, right? Right. You were you were old enough to go, even if I didn't care, I was still old enough to remember a lot of the consequences, right? Yep. And you and I specifically were uh, were resultant in jobs issues, right? hundred percent. Yeah. Job in that in that economy was very much unfun, as even as engineers, which both oh yeah are right. Yeah. No, and it was it was just uh yeah it was it was impactful even if you weren't you know in you know you weren't reading Forbes every day it was still impactful and you were still close enough to to see it and I think we were the generation too that kind of uh, grew up with uh, technology a little bit more like we had computers when we were young um, and and grew up knowing that knowledge and just kind of being inherent and we now have the ability to use you know most of the technology that's still available. Uh, today, even kind of cutting edge technology, our generation still knows that, whereas older generations kind of lose the cutting edge uh, piece. Some of them, I mean, I don't want to say all of them, people do educate themselves, but they didn't grow up with it. It's not inherent in their minds. And then the younger generation don't doesn't remember what it was like to lug around a desktop. Yeah. So like, I think we just caught this, this weird, uh, and I always say this and people just say, oh, you're just saying that because it's your generation. But I really do think we caught this kind of weird window of, of technology as well. It's unbelievable, especially with the rapid development of technology. And again, being engineers, I mean, you and I kind of know, like, it's just the, the, te the technology development, even over the last eight years or so, or 11 since we've been in industry, it's, it's just been astounding. Yeah, astounding. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this, we talked a little bit about kind of how this uh, brings us into a more kind of decentralized, democratized place uh, where we can kind of manipulate um, or not even manipulate, but be able to um, hold the ledger. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and what you know, kind of what does this enable us to do, and how is this, uh, how is blockchain kind of become the you know, as we were just kind of left off the um, with the 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 cryptocurrency with the most buy-in and kind of the the most eloquently done. Yeah, how does it become the dominant life force? Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. On the planet, right? So. So the, so where we left off was, um, you know, uh, your stuff can get shut down. Yeah. Right? And what we said is this stuff can't get shut down. Right. right. And why can't it? And the answer is, yeah. Uh, and the answer is this concept of mining. Right. And they call that in uh, in cryptocurrency, right? We call this uh, proof of work. P O yep. W P with a little O W proof of work. And so what that really means is, right? Everybody's like mining, mining. What does that mean? Uh, I think they they took it from gold, right? And yep. so gold and and it's more eloquent than just the, the term from gold, but it actually is a process through which gold is procured, right? Yep. And so if gold, so we procure about three to 5% new, a new amount of gold every year, three to 5% of the current market, right? Yep. And if, and if gold's prices, price goes up, right, that incentivizes you to put more money into gold mining and yep. mine more gold, right? Yeah. yeah, and yeah. If gold's price goes down. Gold is significantly difficult to procure. Right. And so there's less incentive to mine it. Right. And so right. the production of my of of gold goes goes down in yep. that year. Right. And so it's not quite the same in in Bitcoin specifically. So we're going to we're going to talk mostly in Bitcoin terms here. Right. Yep. I'll talk about some peripheral technologies that I think are really cool and that are really going to just like it just implode systems <laughs> for, like historical systems. Right. But, 
Um, but we'll the the technology concepts will just kind of stick to Bitcoin for the most. Part. Yep. Um, so in Bitcoin, right, the, there's a similar concept. So so if if you're Satoshi Nakamoto, right, this a pseudonymous person who defined Bitcoin, right, yeah. in 2008 after the financial crisis, 2008 2009, right, um, and you go, okay, well, I want this thing that everyone can participate in globally that decentralizes its ledger through everybody, right, and it's going to be huge, right? Okay, well, how do you define a system that can scale? Right. How do you make right. a, a math problem? Because we're talking about crypto cryptographic principles here. How do you make a math problem hard enough that when uh, six people are doing it, it takes about 10 minutes to do. Right. And then when yep. six billion people are doing it, it takes about 10 minutes as well. And actually the, the block, the block uh, procurement time is 10 minutes. So that's yep. the goal is to get to 10 minutes. Right. And so and so the answer is you adjust the problem. Right. And so if people are solving it faster, then you make the problem harder. And if right. people are solving it slower, then you make the problem easier. And that's actually what Bitcoin does. Right. Oh, wow. and so as we as the as more uh, hash power comes online, right, hashing is the is the mathematical problem you're trying to solve. Right. Yep. Uh, as more hash power comes online. Right. We just make the problem more difficult. Right. And so that's the elegant solution. And this is when, you know, the Bitcoin white paper is like eight pages long. And in academics, that's really short. That is. Yeah. yeah. That's un I put my my thesis was hundreds of pages long for, right. for for reference here. Right. And any and any paper I ever published was in the 30s. So. Right. Like, yeah. A, a paper that well, a white paper that describes the technology in eight pages is um, at best, you know, cool and at, and at, at its highest at its peak el eloquent beyond belief right right and so i read the paper and i was like you know this is this is an unbelievable technology right and that's caused most of its adoption yep and so what you're really paying for right what so everybody always asks right and my favorite reference is buffett right warren buffett is a is a uh a, you know a staunch deny crypto denier right right yep but, you know, and I've heard a ton of other tech moguls talk about this, right, where they say, well, I'm not going to take my tech advice from an 85 year old billionaire from Omaha. Right. And that's right. very true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so uh, Buffett's question is. What value does Bitcoin have? Right. Gold I can make into wires. It's malleable. I can use it on spaceships. Right. I yep. can do all these things with gold and it has very specific chemical properties. Right. Yep. But my argument would always be like, well, then why wouldn't you use platinum? It has right. utility. It's more rare. Why don't we use uranium? It has utility. It's even more rare. Why yeah. don't we use that as a store of value, right? Right. Um, it's really not the utility of gold that makes it valuable at all. Right. right? The, 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 the value of gold is a store of value, right? Yep. And so what a store of value is, is, right, it has to have some specific properties, right? It has to be immutable. Right. So we can't just produce more of it if I had gold or something like this. Right. It right. has to be divisible, like significantly divisible. Right. Yep. And and the other thing that it should be is easy to store and move. Right. Right. Gold is not. No. Right? Yeah. And so if you think about if you think about Bitcoin on those terms. Right. Then one, it's a phenomenal store of value. Right. Right. Um, it's immutable because of cryptocurrency mining. And we'll talk about this in a second. Why it has actual value. Right. Yep. Um, it's uh it, it it's you know finite in its supply yep. right and it's easy to move and extremely divisible you can divide yeah. one bitcoin into a hundred million sub pieces right yeah so, i don't i i don't own a bitcoin i own parts of you know tiny little parts of a bitcoin and um, so does everybody most most regular people right yeah Especially yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah and so that's so that's that gives its its store of valueness right yeah and then the value the value prop of bitcoin is that it's the most secure computer network on the planet. 
right? Right. It just is. It, there's more computing power being shoved into securing the Bitcoin network than than the SWIFT, ACH, right. SEPA, any of these any of these banking institutions that are transferring. I mean, they say that the average the average issue of bank transfer, like the average issued you know, major issue with a bank transfer is like one to 3% have like issues that right. have to get resolved in the 30 day clearing window, right? right? Bitcoin clears instantly. Yeah. So what are we doing? Right. Well, like, it's, it's funny you say that the most, like the, the most frustrating part of getting into any of the cryptocurrency stuff is the bank transfer that it takes to get into the cryptocurrency world. And then you can just turn it into whatever altcoin or regular, you know, Bitcoin that you want. Like it just transfers immediately and, or it does, you know, takes that, that short 10 minute time or, um, you know, 40 minute time, I think is the, the longest altcoin I've ever seen um, transfer time. But yeah, it's, it's so much quicker than the two, three days of making sure that it's the right bank, making sure that the, you know, routing numbers all, and it's just, it's such a uh, um, much more eloquent system and, uh, very visible once you start getting into uh, investing or, or uh, trading Bitcoin. So. And it's completely peer-to-peer, -peer, right? If yeah. I wanted to send you value right now, right, for uh, having me on, let's, yeah. let's flip it around. If you wanted to send me value <laughs> there on your podcast, right, then you could you can literally, right, take my public address, which is, yep. right, a string of hexadecimal or, you know, a string of, ad, of, of numerical alphanumerics, right? Yep. And you can send it to that address and it is then mine. Right. Right. And so that and that address is public, just like just like your street address. If I wanted to send if, if I wanted to send you some swag or something like this. Right. Yep. And so and so the the, the, the second half to that is the other uh, amazing cryptographic technology that they use. And again, this is kind of where my cybersecurity background really lends me to the understanding is right in cybersecurity. We use the concept of what are known as public keys and private keys. Right. Yep. And so what this public key private key system does is it does a couple of things. It allows you to authenticate yourself as you. Right. Yep. So if you use your private key to uh, to sign a transaction and the math doesn't really matter. Right. But let's just say you use your private key to sign that transaction. That means that you sent it. No one else. Right. And you and you believed it. Right. You believe that you, that's what you were intending to do. Right. Right. We call that authentication is, is you are you. And the other concept is called non-repudiation. It means you can't deny that you did that you did that thing. Right. right? And so and so that's why they tell you. And this is this is the the real um, barrier to entry for a lot of people, right? And what really caused people to not get into this space for a long time was the um, the technical difficulties in understanding public key, private key, right? Because right. private keys are so important. And, they, and yeah. they will tell you when you start doing research about, you know, Bitcoin and these types of things, right? Keep your private key private, right? Um, and that's the most important thing. Usually these days, it's usually represented, you're, like, I, I don't know any of my private keys off the top of my head or anything like this either, but usually right. it's represented by like a 24 um, word phrase Yep. and it's called a seed phrase, right? And so that phrase is the be all end all. Like I literally have a, oh, you know, a phrase, a, a number of these phrases, right? For different hardware walls and things like that in like, uh, like lock boxes and like banks right. and like this, because it literally represents all of the value I have associated with that public address. And if you don't have that, I mean, that that's the, the flip side of it, too. Like you, uh, you know, one of the big stories that just came out, I think, last week or whatever, was uh, the, the police were trying to seize uh, this guy's Bitcoin and they couldn't get in because they didn't have the key. And supposedly he doesn't have the key either. But, you know, who knows? Uh, on I that. Forgot, I, right. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't give the key up either. So I'm, I'm <laughs> with him. So I think civil asset forfeiture is something we also need to get rid of. But yeah. uh, that's a different different topic for a different day kind of thing. Um, no. So th and this is this is. Um, it's opening my eyes because like, I, you know, I've kind of experienced this doing some very 
early kind of entry level stuff uh, and, and saw the terms, remembered the terms and didn't do a ton of research into the terms. So now I'm actually learning about, you know, these things that I saw buying some, some Dogecoin <laughs> recently, <laughs> you know, and doing the thing, you know, just, just trying to play uh, uh, with uh, some of the, the stuff in the market. So. So, so let's apply it to politics and government, right? Yeah. And so, and so for me, right, the, the technology is eloquent and amazing. And I was like, oh, I got to do that. This. this is really interesting. And I can't believe I didn't come around sooner, right? Yeah. Which is really weird for me, right? To say like, I'm, I'm not an untraditional early adopter in a lot of things anyways, um, which is weird to be a technologist and do that. But I'm, I kind of stick to like the middle of the road with this type of yep. stuff. And uh, I, I mean, I heard about it in 2016 and 2017 in my cybersecurity courses, right, that I was teaching. Right. Were like when it went ballistic in 2017, um, I had a student in the back of my class who was like, Bitcoin's at 15,000. I've got like 80K in Bitcoin. I'm like, I don't I don't care about your fake money. Dude. You know what I mean? Right. And I just didn't do the research. I I, I like invested with a buddy and, you know, took a couple hundred bucks or something like this. Right. But yep. didn't, didn't take an interest in the technology. Right. right. OK, so so now we fast forward. Um, and you know, 2019, um, I had a friend, an entrepreneurship friend here, um, who had done a, a blockchain or a, a cryptocurrency mining farm startup. And he was a really interesting guy. And I was like, well, if this guy, you know, put his time and effort in, right. And he's a successful serial entrepreneur out of the Midwest, yep. um, then it's at least worth a look for me. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, you start looking and we, and all the principles that I just discussed here became pretty obvious. Right. And then, and then you start thinking about how then it's, and so the, the, the second part, and they always talk about this when you start thinking about Bitcoin and the way your money works is you start thinking about, well, what is money, right? right. How does money work? Right. And then March hits, right. Uh, COVID and all these other things. Yep. And, and uh, you know, people are uh, hurting and the government passes a stimulus deal, which is, you know, at that, at that point, right, is what they had to do in that yeah. moment, right? Yeah. Regardless of where we were at, you know, you know, for getting to that point, and I, I agree with you guys and your, your ilk in some of this stuff, right? But in right. that moment, that's what they, there was really no other option right. than to, you know, do something. Yep. And so what they did is they did two things, right? They dropped interest rates to zero, which means you can borrow all the money that you want, right? yep. which is unreal anyway. So the closer you are to the faucet, the, the more money you get free right right uh and and along with that they dropped the minimum uh collateral requirement for loans and banks to zero right right you can loan out however much you want the the, the collateral requirement there was like 7x or something like that you can loan out like seven times or ten times what you had yeah i might be a little off on the numbers here but it was something like that something i remember like that. it was yeah, yeah yeah i think it was 7x right? i think it was like seven yeah unreal right you could take one every dollar every dollar that i deposit right you can loan out seven more of those dollars right anyway so these, yeah. are these things where you're like what's going on right and then subsequently they printed three trillion dollars right? right which is the real problem right yep um from a from a bitcoiners perspective right yeah 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 and so and so you go okay well what happens when you when you print money right well what happens is there's more money out there supply and demand eventually dictates right that your, yeah. your dollars are going to be worth less Right. right. And if you look at your dollar over time, it is historically worth less and less and less and less. It just is. Right. Yep. If you look at the stock market, which has gone up, every, you know, gone up on every time your 10 year time frame over the last since the last since the 70s. Right. Yep. If you look at it denominated in something not dollars that doesn't devalue over time. Right. Right. If you denominate the stock market in gold. It's relatively flat. Yep. Basically flat over that time. Right. So you're not generating tons of value in the stock market. You're taking these companies and they're generating value and paying value out and breaking even. -ish, right. Right. I mean, they're paying their, you know, tons of people are making money, but the right. company itself is right flat. Yep. 
And so you go, okay. And so this was the real kicker for me personally, right? Where I was like, this is a problem, right? And, you know, from a, you know, a real personal perspective, right? Uh, my wife is a dentist, right? Yep. I took uh, 10 years and got a PhD in chemical engineering, right? And so you take all this time to net a high value skill set. Yep. And then you realize that in that 10 years, it took you to net that skill set, that the dollars that you're earning are, are worth less than they were 10 years ago when, right. you, when you thought you were, when you were thinking about going in that direction. Right. Right. And so for me initially, right, it was like wealth protection. Not that I have a bunch of wealth, but the idea was right. Like, like, let's, you know, I I talked with my wife about this. I was like, we got to get out of the dollar. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And so, and so that's where this political discussion starts where you go, okay, well then, you know, and then you go, okay, well, you know, here in the U S we don't see that, that, that downward pressure on our currency as much because of a lot of uh, like, you know, political and geopolitical stuff, right. the dollar being the, the base currency for everything, you know, commodities being denominated in dollars, all this other stuff that you can kind right. of get on a rabbit hole. But let's let's instead apply it to someplace where you can see it, right? Like Lebanon. Right. Yep. And you know, we have some Lebanese friends. My wife went to dental school with a bunch of Le- with a few Lebanese Americans. And so, you know, I'm like, what do you think? And they're like, it's crazy. You know, they just printed all this money. And then when the Le- when the when the Lebanese currency finally broke, the levy broke to the dollar because they had it pegged to the dollar for 20 years, the government yep. didn't just said it's just worth this much, which it clearly wasn't. Right. right. The floodgates opened and they lost 40 percent of their value in Lebanese lira uh, in two months. You yeah. Know? And so the people of Lebanon know very clearly, right, that their money is not worth what they think it is worth, one, and two, isn't worth anything more than, you know, whatever the government decides to do with it, right? Yeah. The people of Venezuela know that, the people yeah. of Argentina know that, the people of Brazil are learning that, right? And so you're starting, and so they, and and if you look at the statistics, right, the frequency of cryptocurrency use and specifically Bitcoin use in those countries goes up at an exponential rate when these right. things occur, Right. And you think about it, it's like your your money, your physical money in your pocket every hour, you know, at some, in some of these places was losing value without you doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, that their governments were negatively impacting millions of people, you know, at, by the minute, basically. And, and, you know, the U.S. does this on a much smaller scale. And like you said, there's a lot of market manipulation there that uh, kind of changes that a little bit. But at the end of the day, um, you know, you and I don't vote to bomb other countries they just pull that money out of the federal reserve and buy bombs with it. And that's why the, you know, the deficit goes up and, you know, there's a huge political world we can get into in that space, but that's, that's, that does, it is what happens today. And to, to take away some of that power uh, and bring it back into the hands of the individual consumer, whatever you want to call it uh, is, is powerful. And I, I think it's something that, you know, you can, you can make the, the connection in your head to where we're at today, where we could be in the future um and just figure out and and like you said there are tons of other systems that this could be applied to that uh really starts throwing things out the window uh that are bad you know historical systems that can be improved streamlined and uh and democratized with with uh blockchain and crypto yeah let's let's think about one of those right yeah so let's think about like contracts right this is something that i always thought was weird uh growing up and not understanding business and like i'm like so what so what happens you just sign a contract with somebody and they, you know, you're, you know, an engineer, you know, your sales engineer, right? And they, and then you just agree to provide them a bunch of like, you know, audio tech and, and you know, in bulk and, right. uh, and you fulfill the order and what happens? So what happens if you don't, you know what I mean? 
right. a piece of paper. Now there is sometimes some recourse, but in my environment, right, where it's like technical training, there's really not a whole lot. Of, they're like, they're basically independent small courses or, you know, sets of courses, right? Yep. So it's like, if I just didn't show up or if they just didn't have a course for me, right, what am I going to do? Like, right. nothing. There's no recourse, right? These This contract infrastructure where, where two parties agree on things, right? is is really just you know a trust environment right and right it's, and it's two and it's two parties and maybe an intermediary that trust each other enough to go okay i believe that you'll do it right it's a handshake with some legalese on a piece of paper that people put some inherent faith in it's yeah. basically all it is now yeah it's unbelievable right? yeah and so and so now you start applying this decent this distributed ledger right not just to transfer a value like bitcoin but to actual like events occurring right right and so and so you call these smart contracts, right? And so that's what Ethereum, the second biggest cryptocurrency, allows you to do, right? It yep. allows you to put into code, right, something happening when something else happens, right? And my favorite example, you know, I'm a big sports guy. We played basketball back in whatever, right? Yep. But my favorite example is, you know, sports bets, right? Yep. So what if instead of having to trust Bally's or Harrah's or right, uh, uh, you know, a sports bet, pen gaming or whatever, right? right. Who have had legal issues, right? Like oh, yeah. Large bets. Yep. And there have been people like, like, so that they are not infallible institutions of betting meccas, right? Right. And and there are other things associated with this too, right? Like the data that they choose to use, right? Yep. Where in hockey, right? The number of assists is fluid, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very so much so. You, so there's two things there, right? It's, let's, let's start with the contract, right? So, so you can write in, right? Let's say if Michael Jordan scores 50 points, right? then I will receive, you know, uh, an eighth of a Bitcoin, right? Yep. And if Michael Jordan doesn't score 40 points, right, then you will receive that eighth of a Bitcoin, right? Right. And now it's it's scripted in in, in like the technology, right? Right. There is, it's a it's called trust a trustless environment, right? Right. And so I don't have to trust Bally's or Harrah's or Penn Gaming or any of these other, any of these other organizations. I trust that the ledger executes it when it happens. Right. Now there are some other small things with this, right? That uh, the ledger is immutable. So when you agree on this contract, if either party doesn't want to go along with it anymore, or you both want to not do it anymore, uh, like, you know, depending upon the way the contract is structured, there might not be a mechanism to do that. Right. right. And so you have to be really you have to be really uh, careful with the way you structure these things now, too. Yep. Right. I mean, you can also apply this too to even, you know, uh, untrusted purchases. So if you're purchasing from even like a sketchy website, if there's, you know, if there's something encoded in, say, the tracking number, for instance, or something like that, mm -hmm. it you won't pay for it until it gets to you. And they, you know, you basically sign an agreement that you will pay for it the second it gets to you. You can almost flip it on its head and instead of paying before you get something shipped, you can pay as soon as it gets to your door. Yeah, and I, I like, yeah, 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 exactly. It's just, it's, it's incredible to think of the being able to not only scale this, but uh, apply it to just so many different things that we have these small little contracts in our lives. And then, so, so now you start thinking about all the other stuff we like. So once we've got this base of, you know, value transfer and smart con and scripting, you know, actual action, right? Yep. Now, now your brain just goes, okay. And especially the engineering brain just goes, well, there's all these types of things we can do, right? right. So you were talking about supply chain, right? Yep. So they've developed, uh, you know, there's a company working on, you know, mechanisms for supply chain uh, verification, right? The, the, yep. the, the blockchain is called VeChain. VeChain is the supply chain blockchain that is dedicated. It's it's not a blockchain, is it? It's a ERC twenty token, but it's a it's, it's a dedicated technology to yep. supply chain, right? Um, the one that really got me that I love and I'm a huge fan of this technology is as we is something I alluded to, which is the number of assists in hockey, right? Yeah. So how do you know? So the problem is is the the data is so 
uh, the, the contract is so discreet, right? That if you were to feed that contract incorrect data, right, then you could manipulate the contract. So what's the point, right? Yeah. And so then how do you confirm that the data is correct? Like that's the last piece of the puzzle, right? So we said right. how you transfer Bitcoin. We said smart contract. We said smart contract scripting, Ethereum or Cardano or EOS or any yep. of these other smart contract platforms, right? And then the last piece is, you know, if the data is trash and you've seen all types of blockchain manipulations over the last year and a half with um, decentralized finance, DeFi, yep. um, where they've manipulated the inputs, right? And they've taken these huge flash loans in, you know, US dollar denominated cryptocurrencies, USDT, DAI, USDC. Yep. They've taken these giant loans to manipulate price inputs and then extracted value from that, that, that uh, alpha or that delta, right? Yep. In, in the price. And so, and so how do we, so how do you solve that problem? Right. And there's a great, uh, uh, technology. It's an ERC 20 token, but it's a great company called, uh, or whatever Dow or something like this called Chainlink, Right. And yep. Chainlink is this company that built, they build what are known as oracles, data oracles. Right. And so they aggregate data feeds, right. And they have trusted data feeds that aggregate feeds from other nodes. Right. And then give, you know, like scoring and they, and they give priority to higher trust nodes. Right. Yep. And they punish you if you don't provide good data. Right. And so they, they do all these things to incentivize the best possible data. Right. Right. And the best projects, in my opinion, now utilize these data feeds they are called data oracles. And it's That's just, cool. It's, it's almost like bringing the free market to data. Like you're, 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 you know, promoting those that are doing right. You're, you're, you know, demoting those that are doing bad. You're, you're able to uh, really have a nice closed loop system on, on, how you mine data almost. And I don't mean to use mine in you know the same kind of way, but it's you know you're you're pulling all of this this wonderful uh, information feeds and you're able to actually judge them on a scale. That's that's incredible. I, I just think that's that's another really really powerful and uh, cool technology associated with this. So and that's why you see like the, some of the smartest minds working in this space because there's so much malleability and it's so cutting edge, right? And so it's like how do we incentivize right. good data? How do we disincentivize bad data? How do we disincentivize right. too many nodes running and data and the data feed breaking down? Right, like just all of these weird things. And you're and you're and and there's no real there's no wrong or right answer. Right, if you do it appropriately, then that technology per, uh, reacts the best. Right, you become the you know the the oracle that everyone goes to in that space. It's just right. the wildest thing. And and you know coming from a research background, right? I it's I have a lot of respect for it because I know how difficult it is to to come up with a solution to a problem that no one has ever thought about before. I mean that's what a, a PhD is, right? You right. identify a problem and try and find a solution. You don't always come up with you know uh, you know a high value solution like a you know multi billion dollar chain link. But I mean you right. come up with ideas which are so hard to do. Yeah. No, and, and even being able to, you know, kind of now we have kind of uh, some basic framework. I think this is where, you know, you see the big like the, the early, uh, early, early, early adopters that, that are breaking, like you said, kind of cutting edge on the technology and not even adopters, but, you know, the, the trailblazers, I guess, the folks that yeah, are really start. Yeah, yeah. The innovation that starts early on is is slow, but it's it's steady and it's it, sometimes they make big leaps. But right now where we're kind of given a set of proven tools that uh, have been working, I guess, for, for the last uh, 10 or plus years, now I think is where you see the really big uptick in that kind of hockey stick, uh, you know, exponential uh, growth in an area. Uh, and I think that you, you, we're, we're there right now. Like we're seeing, you know, so many different technologies kind of being built off of this. And um, I mean, I'm excited to see where it kind of goes and, 
um, how we can utilize it to help, you know, decentralize networks of people and uh, uh, of currencies and things like that. I think it's, it's powerful. The first thing you need to do, right, is accept it, right? Yeah. You need to accept the inevitability of this technology, right? And the, and the way that I, the way that I describe it is, um, and, I, and I, I love this analogy. I've been using it for like everybody who's been asking me about the space, by the way, right? Uh, depending upon when you're listening to this podcast, if you're live with us, you know that everything's just ripping right now, right? Right. The popularity, te- you mentioned Tesla bought a billion and a half dollars, MicroStrategy bought a billion dollars in Bitcoin, right? Yep. Um, huge um, macro investors who understand trends and macro trends in society and economics, like Paul Tudor Jones and Raul Paul have come out as, as huge bulls in this space, right? Right. So, so anyway, like you have to accept that it's inevitable and here's how yeah. you do it, right? Um, is you look back and you go, what, what analogy can I draw to this technology and technology taking it over? And I liken it to the internet, right? Yep. And, and so, you know, the people who adopted the internet early, right. And understood what it, what it could be and what it was going to be. Right. And especially the entrepreneurs in that space made a killing, right? Yeah. It was super profitable and everybody adopted it eventually. It's just those guys knew and they bet on it early and, you know, whether it's not investment advice here, but, you know, at least like give them some credit for what they did. Right. Right. Yeah. And let's think about one specific thing in that space, which I think is, uh, in, which is insane. Right. Is that uh, telecoms. Right. And phones. Right. Yep. So in the early days of the Internet, the Internet ran over the phones. Right. right. You dial up. Do you people don't you know, by the way, people don't know what a dial tone is anymore. I've got like yeah. 20 year old kids out of the military. I'm teaching cybersecurity and networking, too. And I'm like, you know, the dial tone. They're like, nope. Anyway. That's crazy. That's uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so right, you know, D to do fifty six k yada yada. Right, then the telcos were the gatekeepers to the internet. Right? right, basically at that time, and and they didn't understand what the internet was, and so what happened? The internet swallowed telephones. Right, right. The, the phones, the phones now run over the internet. Right, right? The, yeah. <laughs> voice over IP, it, Zoom, whatever it is we're doing here, but the original technology is voice over internet protocol. Right, right. Voice over IP. And the innovators from that space are getting into this space, right? Right. Alex Mashinsky, who invented voice over IP, he holds the like institutional patent for voice over IP. It's like an honorary patent, but still, he invented voice yeah. over IP. Like he's innovating in blockchain. He's the CEO of a of a, of a centralized finance co- company called Celsius, and he's innovating in this space. So, so the idea is, and in my opinion, right, that this like what the internet did for, um, you know social for, for data basically right? yep what what the internet did for data making it available to everybody right blockchain is going to do for finance and for decentralization of all transaction right right which is which represents way more than just the data transfer right right if people don't realize that like transactional information right is actually the crux of all society right (laughs) contracts value transfer all this stuff right yeah that's what actually represents all the value we turn data into oil and value right transactions are the value right Right. so this is going to swallow all of that right right? it just is there's no way around it right and i i've even seen and i'm i'm actually now with the knowledge you've kind of imparted into me now i'm going to go back and actually do some more research in this but i actually saw um some some work done in this technology or some at least research being done to um apply this to recycling and how we uh change materials i guess from raw materials into uh final goods and then how that gets recycled and what like kind of the whole system of uh of you know natural resources we have in the in the uh world so it's 
Yeah, it's big. I mean, like you said, like if you break everything down to transactions, there's so that that applies to much more than people think. People think transactions, you know, I hand you a dollar, you hand me a good or service, right? And it's way more than that. Um, yeah. No, this is this is huge. Yeah, it's it's absolutely unreal. I, yeah, and so the, you know, we talked about VeChain as the kind of supply chain, you know, uh, technology for you know, kind of the end the uh, the end of the line. There, what yep. they actually do is I use it as an example for the example we gave, but that's actually what they do, right? Is follow supply from like inception potentially. I mean, the, the technology is to be kind of a full stack technology for supply chain. Yep. Yeah, like so you can verify right that if this company is advertising a, a green solution to water bottles, right? Then, then they have sourced their uh, their inputs appropriately, right? Right. And they have produced this, you know, plastic appropriately or whatever it is, right? And th- and you can actually verify it instead of having some independent audit that you have to pay for, right? Right. Uh, go- from some governmental organization or whatever, right? Again, we're taking these centralized infrastructures that we built because we didn't know any we didn't know any other way to do it, right? Right. And we said we can apply code to this, right? And we can make it so we don't need any of that stuff. And it just runs. Right. Right. We, we reduce all the overhead. This reduces the barrier to entry to these financial systems, to, you know, uh, individuals in like impoverished countries or impoverished neighborhoods in this country, all this stuff. Like right. it's just value transfer now. Right. And I can get it from you to a developer in Brazil just as quickly as I can get it from, you know, me to you here in the States, you know, after this podcast. Right. Right. I'm not asking for value transfer <laughs> for you, but I've alluded a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's, it's you're you're actually, and I, I've seen um, one instance uh, recently where uh, Nigerian government actually is pushing back, um, and they're saying, you know, they're making it illegal uh, to own Bitcoin. I don't even know how they're they're, they're applying what they know of of uh, you know some sort of policy or or um, legislation to something that they probably don't really understand. Uh, whoever's making the legislation, I'm not saying people in Nigeria, people in Nigeria do understand this and they're, they're, uh, um, been utilizing this as a way to get out of the centralized uh, monetary systems because they're activists and they're, they're, um, you know, they're going against their government who does hold all that power of their wealth. Or because they're regular people and they want their money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they yeah, turn yeah. themselves into activists by doing that, right? Right. Um, yeah, it's it's absolutely insane. And then, you know, to kind of make it full circle when we think about, you know, government and how you interact with people, who does, you know, the devaluation of the dollar affect preferentially, right? It's people who denominate their, their wealth in dollars, right? Right. Which is people who don't have other assets. Right. Because when the dollar when the dollar goes down, right, the valuation of all these other assets goes up. Right. Right. Housing prices go up. Stock prices go up. The price of gold goes up. Right. And so who who owns stocks and gold and homes and commercial real estate? Right. Those right. people don't see the effects of this. Actually. Right. It's really more of a transfer of wealth from the people who are doing the work to make those assets. Right. Right. To the people who have those assets. Right. So the 100%. idea that inflation is some right fixed value in our currency in our in our currency in our lives right and that percent right. inflation is good is insane to me after two years of thinking about cryptocurrency right never having thought about how my money worked prior to that to be honest to be frank with you yeah yeah same here yeah and you know i'm i'm this is opening my eyes you know as we're talking i'm i'm thinking more about it and being able and my mind is kind of going i'm i'm listening to you 100 percent and trying to absorb everything i can but it's just you know in the back of my head like man there is a lot of uh things that people are throwing away in that inflation, you know, that 3% that people, you know, everyone expects a cost of living raise. And even that has been taken away from a lot of folks. Like, you know, and, and people are saying, well, I didn't get a raise this year. 
yes, that's part of it, but you also lost money this year because you didn't get that 3%. Like yeah. that 3% is not a raise. It's not uh, you making more for your inherent uh, knowledge and, and, and work that you've been putting in. Uh, it's just to make up for what the money manipulators are doing in Washington. Like, uh, you know, it's scary. To be frank, it's been stressing me out. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm like, we're like, okay, you know, we're moving into, you know, inflation hedge assets. And, you know, I'm trying, my wife hears this story every single day. I'm sure she hears me in here yelling about it right now. And she's like, you've got to be kidding me with this again. Right. But I, like, it stresses me out on, you know, not a daily basis, but it's, you know, I feel like, you know, you're running on a treadmill, but you know, the treadmill keeps increasing in speed. And if you, it's like, okay, well, you're getting faster, but it's not that much faster because you, you still are having to work against you know, the date, the daily increase in speed, the daily right. lack of value that you're running against every single day, you know? Yeah, no, that's, this is uh very eye opening. I hope a, a ton of the uh, folks uh, watching and soon to watch, you know, after this uh, gets downloaded and stuff later, Um, you know, I hope that this does open some folks, you know, minds and eyes and, and tries to, uh, you know, I, I think there's, you know, um, uh, you know, when you can touch a thousand people with kind of the knowledge, you know, if you have one or two of those folks that does something with that and, and really uh, changes the way that it works, for instance, if there's someone out there listening that, uh, you know, gets into this and actually does something that will change how we, you know, do something with financing or, or these contracts in the future, that's huge. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, you sharing this knowledge with us is, is, uh, invaluable. It's, it's really, really great. I, I appreciate all the time you've been spending. I'd love to give you, you know, we're kind of up against the, the, uh, time usually, but, uh, I want to, I know it goes quick, man. Um, I want to kind of give you like one last, uh, piece. I'd plug anything you want to plug, but also, you know, kind of leave us with what you, uh, kind of see for the future of this and, and how we can kind of utilize it for doing some good, I think in the world. Yeah. So I don't forget, right. Uh, my YouTube channel is Intelligence Quest, and I think that's where you found me. I was talking about Bitcoin on in Intelligence Quest, but yep. I talk about cybersecurity principles, um, Bitcoin, and a bunch of just technology stuff. I do some home automation, just just things that you would be interested in. I'm interested in as well, not you specifically, the proverbial you. So yeah. the YouTube channel is called Intelligence Quest. Um, I'm Travis IQ on Twitter. I tweet about kind of the same stuff, and I'm Travis underscore IQ on Instagram, and the website's IntelligenceQuest.com. Um, we do like cybersecurity training and some stuff, but uh, but the other social media stuff is probably a little bit more fun. Um, what I will leave you with. Yeah. So I wanted, so you were finishing off with, you know, what you can do or how people, you know, might innovate in this space. Um, yeah. The thing that I would leave people with is, you know, and you pointed out, you, you acknowledged this earlier was, you know, just participating in this decentralized infrastructure is in itself, you know, I would say a small protest to the, uh, the institutions that are, you know, doing this devaluation to you. Right. Right. And so personally, right, I feel more satisfied by just by just holding Bitcoin, specifically Bitcoin. That's like the first thing I posted on that channel was Bitcoin. Right. It's yep. the store of value. It's how you opt out of this these, this inflationary environment. Right. Right. And the more dollars right, that you take and denominate in Bitcoin. Right. It's the less dollars that are floating around in this system being devalued. Right. Right. And so the first thing I would say the the best takeaway is, you know, if if you think if you think that the way we describe this infrastructure is correct, right, and you think that this is where we're going, then you know what I mean. Take take a chance and start denominating some of your value in Bitcoin and and see you know 
what this infrastructure can do for us and for you. I think that right. that's the real that's the real takeaway. Is like just think about it, and if you want to participate in it, you are you are actually making a political statement to some extent, and not right or left or any of that stuff. You're just making it saying I want control of my dollars, my value. You know, right. And you're, you're making the decision to do so instead of just being born into a system where we use this currency. I mean, it's you're, you're actually making an active step in uh, moving towards a system that's not, you know, doing these things to us. So and I, you I never had that option before, you know, right. what I mean? and, and you never had a more obvious option than now. Right. right. Where people where there is institutional buy in. Right. Like we said, Tesla, micro strategies. Right. Governmental entities are looking at making CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. There's an argument as to whether they're good or bad. But right. right. Like institutionally. Right. They're they're th thinking about coming out with ETFs. They have funds like NY Dig and Grayscale that are buying Bitcoin and allowing people to get exposure in their IRAs. Right. Like right. This stuff is happening on, a, on an institutional level right now. And so, and so when you were thinking, oh, maybe it's like, uh, you know, some offshoot cyber, cyber punk guys, cyber punk guys <laughs> doing these things right now, right? Tesla, uh, Jack Dorsey, right? Uh, Michael Saylor, all these guys, this is, this is something that is happening. Right. And so, you know, it, it's, a, it's an inflection point that you probably should be aware of at a minimum. Right. Absolutely. No. And I, like I said, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I think this was great. And I, um, I, I'd love to have you on again at some point and, um, you know, we can talk a little more in detail about some, you know, go down one of these rabbit holes and really dive deep. Um, and I have a bunch of other uh, friends kind of in the, the same kind of podcast space that would probably be very interested in talking to you as well. So if you're interested, you know, let me know and we'll we'll connect you with some folks that uh, also have uh, some good followings in the space. because I, I think it's powerful. I love for as many people to hear about this as possible and uh, I think the way that you described it was very accessible. I mean, I don't think I needed a cryptography degree to understand what you were talking about. You were able to break it down pretty simply for uh, myself and others to to really grasp um, and understand the value, the intrinsic value and um, why moving to a system like this would be uh, beneficial for democratizing the world, if you will. That sounds, you know, hyperbolic, but I really think it's the truth. So. Yeah, well, thanks a lot, man. It was really fun. We definitely have to do it again sometime. And obviously, I don't mind speaking about it. So yeah, no, this is great. And I uh, hope you have a great night. And I will talk to you later. Sounds good, man. Thanks. So that was Travis. Uh, you know, he he um, opened my eyes to a bunch of different stuff. I, I have spent a little bit of time, very little bit of time, you know, probably a, a handful of hours uh, going through some of this and, and trying to learn it. Um, having someone explain it like this, I feel like is the best way to kind of absorb the knowledge immediately. Uh, and then, you know, diving in deep, uh, into something that you're interested in, cause this really can apply to many different, uh, aspects in any sort of transaction that you can think of. Um, so yeah, I, I hope folks take this and, and try to, uh, learn a little bit more on their own. And I hope to have Travis back on so we can dive deep on a couple of these issues, but, um, you know, thanks for everyone joining. Uh, next up, we have uh, Ari. Uh, they are coming on to talk about some of the work they're doing down in Louisiana. Um, we're hoping to help uh, maybe do some fundraising for that, maybe uh, before the show, after the show, or during. Uh, we're trying to figure that out now. But uh, they're doing a lot of work trying to help and house uh, folks that are 
homeless and and being kicked out of homes basically during COVID, but even before that, uh, that are uh, transgender uh, and, and uh, gender nonconforming. So um, we're going to have a good time talking with Ari, and they have a lot to uh, discuss. I'm, I'm excited to dive into a bunch of stuff, too. There's mutual aid and activism and all sorts of stuff we're going to talk about. So uh, join us on Thursday. That's Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of uh, Post Political Podcast. Thanks. Thanks.